0: Well, when I was in year two at school, I remember very clearly being bullied by a year five or maybe a year six kid. I can't remember how old he was. I, I don't remember a lot of the details, but I can still recall the feeling all those years ago of, of what it's like to, to try and spend my lunch avoiding this big, aggressive person a few years older than me. I mean, you're probably only about this big. I was probably that big, but I still had that feeling, I can almost remember it refreshly, what it was like to be bullied. Bullying is horrible at school, but it also happens to older people. In fact, bullying is something that seems to be spoken about much, much more in the workplace than it once did, I think. Is there now more bullying happening than there was in the past? Maybe. Or maybe not. Maybe we're just calling it out for what it is and we're making it easier for people to complain and to seek justice, which is a good thing. But as we think about bullying, we need to remember something really obvious and that is that bullying is even worse when it's done by someone who is a leader in power. The leader is supposed to be the person who is acting kindly and justly not a person who's undermining others and pushing their weight around. And it's something that must never be tolerated in any organisation. And I'm sure you know this, but if you see it happening in an Anglican church, speak up about it. We have a professional standards unit and their details are in the Southern Cross magazine that is available at the front counter, at the front desk. Go and speak to them. Report it. Let people know about this. We need this to stop. Now the reason that I'm mentioning this however today is because in the two chapters we're looking at from 1 Kings we will see to- tonight big bullies doing big bullying. We will watch the bullying of the neighborhood, sorry, the neighboring king who bullied God's king And then we'll see God's king himself bullying his people. And as we have a look at this, we will see what God thinks about it. And we'll also see what kind of behavior is completely wrong for God's king. Because remember, as we see the king of Israel, we're reminded of the very fact that we are hungry, that we are longing for a king who will be the right king, who will be the best king, who will not sin, which will show us afresh why we need Jesus as king more than anyone or anything else. And so it starts us, we're here in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 1, with the first bully. This is the king who rules in the area above Israel, up the top area. And we see in verse 1 of chapter 20 that about that time, King Ben-Hadad, he's the bully, King Ben-Hadad of Aram mobilised his army Supported by the chariots and horses of 32 allied kings, they went to besiege Samaria, the capital of Israel. That's so God's place. And they launched attacks against it. The king, who is on the country above Israel, has come down to bully Israel. And with his physical aggression came another threat. Not only did he push his weight around, Have a look at what he mouths off about. Verse 3. He says to the king of Israel, Your silver and gold are mine, and so are your wives and the best of your children. That is extremely threatening behavior. The bully north of the border threatened Israel. He was basically saying he was going to force Israel into submission. I will squash you, I will be your king, you will follow me. And so what did the king of Israel, what did God's king do under these circumstances? What do you think he would do? Because he's a pretty strong guy. This is, this is King Aram, that we've, sorry, sorry, uh, the, the, the king we've had before. What is he going to do, King Ahab of Israel? Verse 4. All right, my lord, the king, Israel's king replied, all that I have is yours. What does the king of Israel do to this bully who's outside God's land? He rolls over. No worries, that's fine. Let me know if there's anything else you want. In fact, he even calls him, my lord, the king. King Ahab grovelled to the bully. He grovelled to him. And possibly it's because King Ahab of Israel thought that this northern bully wouldn't actually do anything to him if he was nice and submissive. It's like, well, this is what happens with vassal states and all this stuff. We have an aggressive person over there and they say, I am going to be your king. You say, all right, whatever you want, I'll pay you some money and you'll go away and everything's fine. But it escalates. Verse 6. But about this time tomorrow, he says to him, he says, I will send my officials to search your palace and the homes of your officials. They will take away everything you consider valuable. He basically says, I'm going to come in and I'm going to take the lot. And it's only now that King Ahab of Israel says, well, that escalated quickly. i better go and chat to the rest of the powerful people who are in my kingdom to let them know what's happening and ask them for their thoughts. And what do they say? Verse 8, they say, don't give in to any more demands. All those elders and the people said, Don't do it. Don't roll over anymore. You're the king of God's people. You need to stand up. See, King Ahab, he's been a weak king. He's been giving in to the bully, trying to have a simple life. But his own people say, we don't want that bully to get away with it. So they say to Ahab, you've got to push back. And so he does. Well, sort of. Verse 9. We read that Ahab told the messengers from Bully Ben-Hadad. Say this to my lord, the king. So, you know, continues to grovel. I will give you everything you asked for the first time, but I cannot accept this last demand of yours. And so the messengers return to Ben-Hadad, the bully, with that response. He's like, well, I'm happy to kind of be the guy who, who sort of bows down to you and gives you some money and all that kind of stuff. I'm not so happy about you coming in and just wiping us all out, if that's okay with you, my lord, my king. And so then King Ben-Hadad comes back to, to Ahab and we read that he wasn't thrilled by the response. He says, May the gods strike me and even kill me if there remains enough dust from Samaria to provide even a handful for each of my soldiers. Oh, all right. He's not so happy about the pushback. The bad bully king from the north says, No, 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 no. I'm going to come down and I am going to Absolutely obliterate you! I'm going. There's going to be a complete holocaust. What does King Ahab do? Well, he gets a bit more gumption. Verse eleven, he sends back a message. Okay, the king message says, "A warrior putting on his sword for battle should not boast like a warrior who has already won." In other words, he's saying, "You might be this supreme bully." But you're saying that you've won the battle before you've even started. You're putting on your sword for battle and you're, you're acting like you've won. What kind of arrogant bully are you? Well, like most bullies, really. Strangely enough, for some sort of reason, King Wimpy Ahab actually shows some hope amidst hopelessness. So hopefully King, the guy up the north, might actually say, all right, Okay, I'm scared by your response. I'll stand back. But it doesn't scare the bully one bit. Verse 12, Ahab's reply reached bully Ben-Hadad and the other kings as they were drinking in their tents. Prepare to attack, Ben-Hadad commanded his officers, and so they prepared to attack the city. It's not looking good. The bully and his mates are up there in a tent, drinking away. Hey, um um away they go, they're drinking. It's like, oh, what's the guy from down the wimp down there saying? Oh, well, let's get into it. Let's uh, let's do the attack thing. And with all of that, out of the blue, the Lord intervenes. We haven't seen much of the Lord in all this. Well, certainly Ahab hasn't really got involved with God at all. And it's all with this prophet who pops in. Probably one of the 7,000 prophets who had not bowed down to Baal. And we read in verse 13, a certain prophet came to see King Ahab of Israel and told him, this is what the Lord says. Do you see all these enemy forces? Today I will hand them all over to you and then you will know that I am the Lord. It seems utterly impossible. Ahab's army are pretty wimpy. Ben-Hadad is a superpower. What on earth could possibly happen? Well, we are told by the Lord that the Lord is on the side of Israel. He will defend his people. He is not going to let them get away with this bullying behaviour. And so Ahab, the king, he responds, verse 14. Ahab asked, well, how will the Lord do it? And the prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The troops of the provincial commanders will do it. Who's going to do the attacking? The troops of the provincial commanders. More literally, and you see this in some translations, it's the youth of the provincial commanders. It's the, it's the young teenagers. It's the same, way, the same word that was used to describe David before he went out to Goliath. It's not the most impressive, seasoned, experienced warriors. It's kind of like, let's send out the reserves. Let's send out the gap year kids. You know, it's kind of off they go. And it's like, how's this going to work? And then Ahab wonders, well, all right, if I'm going to send out all these teenagers to go and fight. He then says, should we attack first? Ahab asks Yes, the prophet answered. The Lord says, you, I am going to win. And the way you're going to do it is you are going to send out your teenage boys and you're going to attack first. What do you think Ahab will do in that situation? He has got, he's already said, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full to the bully up north. Now he's actually got to really stick it to him and say, okay, I am going to be the first, well, I'm going to be the one who pulls the trigger first. I am going to be the one who starts this fight and I'm going to do it with my youngest. And so, verse 15, we see that he did. He mustered the troops of the 232 provincial commanders and then he called out the rest of the army of Israel, some 7,000 men. It's not... In the whole scheme of things, an awful lot, but he does. King Ahab trusts the word of the Lord. We're sort of on the edge of another kind of David and Goliath sort of battle. But Ahab has heard the word of the Lord. God has spoken to him through this prophet. And he says, I am going to trust God in that. And I'm going to do what he says. Smart move. And so they get ready to attack. And what will those scary kings up north be like? We read in verse 16 that about noontime, as bully Ben-Hadad and the 32 allied kings were still in their tents, drinking themselves into a stupor. It's not even lunchtime. And these guys are absolutely off their faces. They are plastered. And they're kind of like, they think that silly little Israel is worth nothing. We'll just push around our weight and we'll sit here and we'll just drink ourselves stupid. Oh, off we go. And before long, as they're there having their big party, thinking, well, what could possibly go wrong? The border surveillance people notice on their little monitors with their satellites or whatever the equivalent was back then, hang on, people are coming towards us. We're getting attacked. They're heading towards us from Israel. And so Ben-Hadad is told, what are you going to do about it? And we read in verse 18, Take them alive, Ben-Hadad commanded, whether they've come for peace or come for war. Uh, Our translation has done a very nice job of of smoothing that over. The, The original actually sounds really kind of whether they've come, take them alive if they've come for peace, take them alive if they've come for war or what. It sounds almost like they're slaughtering his words. He looks like an idiot, so confident that he's there, just, you know, up, shop, next to yours, up we go. And there they are, and the Lord is sending the kids over to come in. And he says, take them alive, whatever. The bully just wants to keep partying, or maybe by then have a long rest on the couch, whatever it is. But he said, I'll just take them captive and I'll deal with it tomorrow. But King Ahab has decided to follow the Lord. And so we read in verse 20 that each Israelite soldier killed his Aramean opponent and suddenly the entire Aramean army panicked and fled. The Israelites chased them. But Bully King Ben-Hadad and a few of his charioteers escaped on horses. (laughs) However, verse 21, the king of Israel destroyed the other horses and chariots and slaughtered the Arameans. Bully Ben-Hadad is now humiliated. He's humiliated because he said to God's army, I am going to squash you. And God's army, what did they do? They listened to the Lord and the Lord said, you've got to go in there. Trust me. Bully Ben Hadad is now humiliated. It is a surprising victory. It is a glorious victory. But there's one slightly weird thing about the victory. And that is the bad, bad bully is still alive. You think, surely for this to be done right, he's got to be killed too. Wipe these guys out and they will not ever again come into God's land and say, I am going to squash you. But he's around and the prophet has a special word. He says to King Ahab, get ready for another attack. Begin making plans now for the king of Aram will come back next spring. Basically, next year he'll be back get ready for him, that bad bully bloke is going to return. But I, it's interesting to actually get an insight into what Ben Hadad's people thought about this incredible defeat that they had. They do it a bit of analysis. They kind of, they have a bit of a theological reflection upon the way that the God of Israel has worked with the Israel people. It's a little laughable. Verse 23. After their defeat, Ben-Hadad's officer said to him, the Israelite gods are gods of the hills. That's why they won. But we can beat them easily on the plains. All right. Okay, so God only operates at altitude. Is that right? So you get down low and he can't go down there. Is that how it works? Right. Brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Let's go in again. Sure. And off they go. Uh, they think that Ahab's God is so small that he can only help when they're on the hills and not when they're in the plains. They misunderstood the strength of the Lord. Idiots. And they said in verse 25, there's no doubt that we'll beat them. Oh, I love that. I love that confidence. No, oh, absolutely. 100%. What could go wrong? Nothing. She'll be right. You sure? Ha, absolutely. Pour me another scotch. Off we go. And then we see the next battle. Fast forward to this battle in this place called Aphek. We read in verse 27 that Israel then mustered its army, set up supply lines and marched out for battle. But the Israelite army looked like two little flocks of goats in comparison to the vast Aramean forces that filled the countryside. What's the message here? Israel does not look impressive. God's people look like oh it's like oh this is going to be horrible to watch I can't look at this this is going to be an absolute annihilation it looks impossible you can just imagine drone footage of the battle flying and you're looking down and then you've got the amazing Aramean army all out there and you've got God's people down here just a couple it's like who are they down there Where's the, where is the opposition that is the opposition really Ooh, that's not going to be good and that's right where we're at right now it looks impossible to win. But the Lord is God and He is fighting for his people. Verse 28, we read that then the man of God, the prophet, went to the king of Israel, Ahab, and he said, this is what the Lord says, here are your marching orders. The Arameans have said, oh, the Lord is the God of the hills and not of the plains. So I will defeat this vast army for you and then you will know that I am the Lord. Ahab might think, oh, I'm a good, good ruler. I'm a good, good warrior. I know how to do all this. Yeah, it's the Lord. The Lord is the one. The prophet of the Lord tells Ahab about the stupidity the enemies have in thinking that they've got their strength only in the hills. And so verse 29, we read that the two armies camped opposite each other for seven days. And on the seventh day, the battle began. The Israelites, how many? 7,000? Killed 100,000 Aramean foot soldiers in one day. But the rest fled into the town of Aphek. But the wall fell on them and killed another 27,000. The Lord is in control. And Ben Hadad the bully fled into the, into the town and hid in a secret little room. It is a humiliating loss for bully Ben-Hadad. And it's a glorious win for the Lord and for the Israelites. You know, in all of this, it's actually a lot like what happened at Jericho. It's something I picked up in John Woodhouse's commentary. Six days walking around and then finally on the seventh day, a wonderful victory. You just feel that kind of parallel and I think there's, that's to be seen in all of this. And now with this victory, like the trumpets, The walls come down, all that kind of stuff. We now see bad bully Ben sitting there cowering, looking really wimpy. The Lord has won and the bully is cowering. And so what do the bully and his officers do? Verse 31, Ben Hadad's officers said to him, Sir, we have heard that the kings of Israel are merciful. So let's humble ourselves by wearing burlap or sackcloth, you know, hessian. Let's wear that around our waists and put ropes on our heads and surrender to the king of Israel and then perhaps he'll let you live. The bully has been humbled. He's now got to go and and walk around the king not wearing his big robes but wearing just hessian, just like potato sacks. It's a sign of repentance or a sign of remorse or something. And they do this because they've heard that the kings of Israel are merciful and kind. And so they wonder whether their acts of violence and bullying will be forgiven. And so, verse 32 they put on burlap and ropes, and they went to the king of Israel and begged, Your servant Ben Hadad says, Please let me live. And the king of Israel responded, Oh, is he still alive? He is my brother. What are we to make of this? It's interesting, isn't it? I wonder what you think when you see this. The bully is crying out for mercy. And the king of Israel, who has been bullied horribly, senselessly, he calls him his brother. It's a little surprising. he still seems to kind of be starstruck by the king that he's now defeated. The one who said, I will crush you, I will turn you into powder. And we read in verse 34 that Ben-Hadad told the king, I will give you back the towns my father took from your father and you may establish places of trade in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And then Ahab said, no worries mate, I will release you under these conditions. So they made a new treaty and Ben-Hadad was set free. Ahab, God's king, has he done the right thing or not? I'm not going to ask you, I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up or walk to this side of the room if it's a yes or no. But just right now think. Do you reckon Ahab, the king of God's people, has done the right thing in letting this guy go, the bully go? Has he done the right thing or not? Just think about it. Well, Ahab looks good. He feels good. He's now got the power. He can now exert that by releasing this enemy and setting him free. He's strong and he's kind. But did he win the victory? No. It wasn't his victory. It's the Lord. The Lord won. And in all of this, Ahab has ignored the Lord. Hasn't said a word to him. It's, It's like the Lord didn't even exist. This... Blatant forsaking of the Lord is not going to work well for Ahab. And what's more, he has, he has ignored a command from the Lord and that is, wipe these guys out. Exert my judgment because they hate me and they hate my people and judgment day is coming for them now. And as we see a little bit later on, I mean, you can look at it yourself. I'm going to skip a few verses. The Lord uses a prophet to deliver a difficult word to the king. And skipping to verse 42, the word is this. This is what the Lord says Because you have spared the man I said must be destroyed, now you must die in his place, and your people will die instead of his people. What has happened? Ahab, in his arrogance, didn't consult the Lord after the victory. And what's more, he failed to obey the Lord. Now, again, we don't fully get this. And it's different today. We, We don't go around doing violence towards the enemies of Jesus. That is not the way of now. There is a day when judgment is coming. Make no mistake. But that is in the future when Jesus returns to come and judge the living and the dead. But now we just wait and we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us. But back then, God did carry out his judgment in particular times, at particular places, in a physical way. The kingdom of God is now spiritual. Back then it was physical. And we see that and God said, you've got to wipe them out. You've got to show the judgment on them because they hate me and they need to take that. But Ahab didn't do that. The problem is, The Lord's king needs to listen to the Lord. He needs to obey the Lord. That's what the king needs to do. The king needs to obey the Lord. It's what Jesus did. He obeyed the Lord. He he was obedient to the Lord, even to death, even death on the cross. It was not a nice choice. It was not an easy choice, but it was the only right choice. Ahab, the king of God's people, what is he going to do? He's going to do the wrong choice. He's going to do the easy choice. He's going to do the nice choice. But he's going to do the choice that disobeys God. And so he heard the judgment of the prophet and Ahab, the king of Israel, verse 43, went home to Samaria angry and sullen. His disobedience at the end of the day, shows that he doesn't respect the Lord. He's seen the Lord do these amazing acts of salvation when they should have been wiped out by these enemies. And what does he do? He doesn't really listen to the Lord, doesn't really follow the Lord, and he hasn't been changed. And we will see just how much he has not been changed because now the guy who was bullied becomes the bully. Check this out. Verse 1 of chapter 21. There was a man named Naboth from Jezreel who owned a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. Okay, so, So this guy, King Ahab, who was being bullied, we now turn to him, he's got this sort of summer palace up here in Jezreel and it's next to this guy's vineyard. And this vineyard is owned by this guy called Naboth. And we see that King Ahab wants his land. So verse 2 we read, One day King Ahab said to Naboth, the guy with the vineyard, Since your vineyard is so convenient to my palace, I'd like to buy it to use as a vegetable garden. I will give you a better vineyard in exchange, or if you prefer, I will pay you for it. Sounds fairly reasonable. Not that King Ahab needed any vegetables or anything like that. It's kind of like he just wanted to have a little bit of a veggie garden to potter around him. And he really wanted that one. And he wanted that guy to just give it up to him. He'd get paid back for it. So just simple, just give it to the king. But verse 3, Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that was passed down by my ancestors. Uh, That's a no, King Ahab. And if you knew the Lord very well, you'd know you shouldn't have asked me for that. It is the special family inheritance that my people have received. And I'm not supposed to give that up. You know that, don't you, King Ahab Leviticus 25? Naboth wanted to obey the Lord, which meant that he couldn't obey the king. But Ahab The guy who's been bullied, he didn't really care about the law of the Lord. He just wanted a little hobby farm to play with. And so he went home and sulked. King Ahab went home angry and sullen because of Naboth's answer. The king went to bed with his face to the wall and refused to eat. No, 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 no. You just picture it. There he is. Here's a little tantrum. And as he hears the I want my vineyard. And listening out there at the door is is his wife. Lovely, kind, gentle Jezebel. And she goes and says, oh darling, why are you so sad? Why are you off your food? What's making you so just sad? And he says, verse 6, I asked Naboth to sell me his vineyard or trade it, but he refused. Ah, Ahab told her you might think that i'm sending this up we're supposed to be reading it like this he's looking like an absolute clown okay king ahab of all and so jezebel his lovely kind gentle butter wouldn't melt in her mouth wife says a lovely word of kindness and comfort are you the king of israel or not get up and eat something and don't you want to about it I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. You can't even sort yourself out. You need me to do it. Okay, well, fair enough. What does Jezebel think? She doesn't care for the word of the Lord. She's not interested in all those sort of mamby-pamby kind of Leviticus 25 stuff. No, husband's having a bad day, having a bit of a temper tantrum. She's going to sort it out. She cares about her husband's reputation. No one tells my husband no. And which means that she's... So she takes control of that situation and she is going to get that veggie garden no matter what it costs. So she hatches a little bit of a plan. Verse 8. So she wrote letters in her husband's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent them to the elders and the other leaders of the town where Naboth, the vineyard guy, lived. And in her letters she commanded... Call the citizens together for a time of fasting and give Naboth, the vineyard guy, a place of honour and then seek two scoundrels across from him who will falsely accuse him of cursing God and the king and then take him out and stone him to death. Have a nice day, lots of love, meek and mild Jezebel. Naboth was going to be stitched up. What's he done wrong? He said, I'm going to follow the Lord, not the king. I'm not going to give up my land for this tyrant's, this bully's little veggie patch. And so verse 14, we read, the town leaders then sent word to Jezebel, done, carried it out. Naboth's been stoned to death. How do you feel about this? This is the guy who was bullied senselessly and the only way in which he was able to get over the bullying and sort it out was by the Lord. The Lord was the guy who finished up the bully and then he finished him up a second time and then Ahab said, oh, don't worry about it, mate, off you go. He's not listening to the Lord. He's not changed and now he's heard, well, he would have heard by now that his wife has gone and had this guy knocked off and Jezebel told the king about the death now what do you think Ahab's going to do oh you can't do that you can't disobey the lord how dare you go and get hitmen to knock off my knock off this guy so I can just take his that's a horrible thing to do do you reckon that's how Ahab's going to respl- reply no yippee so Ahab immediately went down to the vineyard of Naboth to claim it couldn't have run fast enough. Terrific, he's dead. Let's grab it. And who might he meet on the way down there? As he's running as fast as his little feet can say, Oh, I can't wait to get my tomatoes, pumpkins, here we go. It's Elijah. Remember Elijah? The Lord said to Elijah, go down to meet King Ahab of Israel, you've met him before, who rules in Samaria He will be at Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel, claiming it for himself. Elijah's there. Elijah's the guy who has done an amazing demonstration of the power of the Lord and has made King Ahab look like an absolute idiot. And Ahab in the past said, yeah, you're right, I'm sorry, I'll follow the Lord. Until Jezebel came in. We saw that all last week. But now he's forgotten all that. He's going to go down and claim the land like a good bully would do. But he bumps into Elijah, who in verse 19 we read, he's told by the Lord to give the king the message. This is what the Lord says. Wasn't it enough that you killed Naboth? Must you rob him too? Because you have done this, dogs will lick your blood at the very place where they licked the blood of Naboth. That's the word of the Lord. He won't cope with that bully. Judgment comes from the Lord to Ahab. He will be killed like Naboth, but he will die for his sins. How does Ahab respond? How does Ahab, the one who was bullied, who's now become the bully and is about to go and get his free pumpkin patch? Verse 20. So, my enemy, you have found me. Ahab is quite... It's like a James Bond movie. Yes, Elijah answered. I have come because you have sold yourself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. Elijah comes in judgment. And the judgment is not just for Ahab, but his whole family. Verse 22. I'm going to destroy your family as I did the family of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and the family of Basha, son of Ahijah. For you have made me very angry and have led Israel into sin. Ahab... How many times do you have to see the power of the Lord? How many times do you have to see the mercy of the Lord? And what do you do? Again, again. But it's not just him. Speaking of dogs, verse 23. And regarding Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will eat Jezebel's body, the plot, the land in Jezreel as well. She will become rubbish that the dogs maul, like roadkill. And it all comes back to their heart. This is the big problem. We read verse 25. No one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did under the influence of his wife Jezebel. His worst outrage was worshipping idols just as the Amorites had done. The people whom the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. The sentence was fair. Because this man and this woman were the epitome of evil. Ahab and Jezebel were the epitome of evil. There's nothing nice about them. It would be wrong for them to continue without being judged. It would be wrong for them to continue without, re, re, without receiving the sentence. We've got to realise that. You want to live in a world where people, oh, you don't worry about it. You don't want to live in that world. We don't want to see that kind of world. We want justice. But we see something very interesting here as we come up to the very end of this passage in the sermon tonight. We see this guy get full of remorse. I don't know if you'd expect Ahab, he's a complex character, this guy. We read in verse 27 that when Ahab heard this message, he tore his clothing, dressed in burlap, in sackcloth, And he fasted. He even slept in the sackcloth and he went about in deep mourning. Does he say, I'm sorry? No, he doesn't say, I'm sorry. Not at all. But he feels sad. He feels really sad for what he's done. Well, fair enough. The word of the Lord has brought him sadness for his sin. And so you wonder what the Lord is going to do in this. How will the Lord respond to this guy's sadness? It's, it's remorse. It's not repentance. It's remorse. What is he going to do? This is surprising, I think. I think I'm surprised by this. Verse 28. Another message from the Lord came to Elijah, to the prophet. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's done this, I will not do what I promised during his lifetime. It will happen to his sons. I will destroy his dynasty. The Lord has a strange mercy upon King Ahab. Just imagine what he'd do if he actually said sorry. But he didn't even do that. He just said, I'm just really sorry for myself. And I'm sorry, and I think I've done the wrong thing. But he doesn't say I'm sorry. God shows him a mercy. A mercy that is totally undeserved. Completely undeserved. And I think again, we see in this that we see the justice of God, but we see his mercy as well. And we are surprised yet again by it. But this guy didn't say sorry to God. In the end, he was a bully who learned his craft from another bully. The king of God's people should have known better than this. Leadership is not about being served, it's not about saying, I am going to squash you unless you say to me, "Oh my Lord, my, my no, it's not like that. Leadership is about serving others. Think about the kind of kind of power that Jesus had to push around. He could have done anything to anyone, anywhere, but his power was not in being served. His power was in serving. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is what leadership looks like. Politicians, powerful people, push their weight around in all sorts of spheres and sometimes we see bullies. Tonight we've seen two bullies and it's been ugly. But what does the Lord say? You want to see what leadership looks like? Look to Jesus. He served and he gave his life as a ransom. That is what the leadership is needing for God's people. And it's the leadership we have in Christ whom we serve. Let me pray.